Welcome to Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'm joined as usual by my co-host Sal Dietry. Sal, how are you today? Ed, I'm particularly excited to have uh, Tim Sample, our friend Tim, back on the show. Uh, Tim Sample runs a, a nonprofit called 72 Africa, which focuses on preventing violent conflict and creating sustainable peace through engagement, education, and local economic development. Their main focus are, of attention are African youth who have lost hope and purpose, primarily because of poor economic conditions, but end up being key targets and for recruitment by groups like ISIS. Uh, you know, Ed, I'm hoping that in addition to, um, to talking about Africa, we can talk about how, the, how engagement, uh, you know, education, and local economic development can help in some of the violence we've seen in this country in the past 12 months. You know, Tim, I've got some great stats uh, on the challenges in Africa. Uh, I've been boning up since our last uh, interview with you, but Ed, you know, give us a quick recap from last week, my man. Yes, before we jump in with Tim, a quick reminder about the call to action issued by last week's guest, Azim Kamisa, who forgave his son's murderer, Tony Hicks, 19 years ago, and has been working with Tony's grandfather ever since to promote forgiveness and nonviolence. Azim issued a call for radical forgiveness that made me think of the commandment Jesus Christ issued 2,000 years ago when he said, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and forgive those who hurt you. And in the end, Jesus walked the talk when he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing while he was being crucified. Azim and Jesus provide excellent examples of the kind of forgiveness needed today. If you'd like more information on Azim's nonprofit and Azim himself, please visit tkf.org or azimkamisa.com. That's A-Z-I-M-K-H-A-M-I-S-A.com. You know, and Ed, what was a, a big takeaway for me from Azim was, you know, he did not immediately retaliate or seek vengeance after his son was literally murdered unexpectedly. You know, he, he actually meditated and went into what for him was a deep and spiritual meditation period where he came to within himself the ability to forgive. And, and we need a lot more of that today in this country, my friend. As Sal mentioned, we're joined this evening by Tim Sample, an Arlington resident and the CEO and co-founder of 72 Africa, a nonprofit committed to conflict resolution and promoting peace in Africa. We're going to talk about some of the sustainable peacemaking lessons he's learned over a 40-year career working mostly in the intelligence and policy communities and how these lessons can help us work through the current challenges we're facing as a nation. Tim, welcome to Grayson 30. Thank you, Ed, and thank you, Sal. It's, uh, I am blessed to be here, and it's a pleasure. Yeah, great to have you back. Uh, Tim, let me hit the audience with some, some startling stats that you know, Ed and I dug up. You know, at least 20% of African youth are unemployed. And amazingly, if you can think about the, the numbers here, each year in the next 20 years, there'll be a half a million more 15-year-olds than the previous year. So we've got a, a, a baby boom in Africa. We've got a youth population on an incredible trajectory, and we've got a lot of unemployment. Look, look my first question you know, that comes to mind is what are African governments, as well as the United States and, and Europe, what are we doing to address the situation? 
Sal, it's a great question, and let me start um, by saying that there's there's one more statistic that I think is very relevant here, and it's one that the UN has looked at and has talked about with a lot of governments, not only African governments, but also the governments in the West. And that is, out of their study, they found that for every percentage point increase in youth population relative to the adult population, the risk of conflict increases by more than 4%. So that means, with the statistics you gave, the, the probability of violent conflict um, in various areas of Africa continues to increase year after year. And so this is something, again, that, that governments are looking at. Uh, they certainly express concern over these situations, but we have not found uh, yet where they have uh, – you mentioned a couple of minutes ago somebody walking the talk. They're not quite there yet. They haven't done the prioritization that would that would make prevention of these uh, – or addressing these issues and prevention of violence a key priority within what they do. And if you think about it, um, they're pushed in, in a lot of ways by how the world sees them. And the metrics that the world tends to use are overall economic resilience and economic factors more than anything else. And what it doesn't do, it, it tends to focus on the capital region. It doesn't tend to focus on the rural regions, especially the very rural regions. And what you get with that then is that um, the people in the capital area or the overall economy looks pretty good, but it doesn't address what happens uh, in the areas where youth are unemployed and most and most likely to be targets of, of extremists. One quick uh, thing that I brought up the last time I was here, I'll bring up to you uh, again based as an example. Uh, if you look at Nigeria in the past decade, uh, they had a big economic boom thanks to the oil industry. And when you look at the, the detail, it looks pretty good for the entire government. But when you dig into it, what you find out is that about 10, only about 10% of the population really benefited, and during that same period, the number of people going into poverty increased. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword there when you look at it. The other part, the last part I would, I would talk about in terms of governments is um, that they're overcoming some things that, the, that we have said about years ago. Um, if you really want to find out some of the impact of, of what governments uh, – kind of kind of the wrong direction we've headed down and are now trying to right the ship, um, read the book Dead Aid by Dambisa Moyo. Uh, and you will find that we've spent over $3 trillion in aid um, to governments that in essence in many cases have, have uh, created some dependencies and, and some corruption that we are now addressing and trying to overcome. And that for the political leaders within Africa right now, that's a huge thing for them to, to handle uh, just to keep their, their democracies afloat, let alone um, having the ability to address what's happening in the rural areas. So it's a very complex situation. Um, they do try to address some of it, but we are we are far off from where we need to be. Yeah, let me ask you a question because, uh, you know, I saw recently a, a quote from Bill Gates where he talks about, you know, a, a sort of acknowledging this publicly that Africa is the world's youngest continent. You know, youth go hand in hand with dynamicism. That, that can be positive or negative. But, you know, you don't really see in the media, at least here in the United States, 
uh, anyone really focusing on any of these peace initiatives or any of the good things that are going on. We we obviously quickly hear about boots on the ground. Do, do you know, is there any movement at all to start bringing some of this more to the public's eye um, in a positive way? I mean, obviously you're here today with us, but is there anything you're seeing in, in the media or anything that other organizations are doing, uh, the NGOs, for example, what what are they doing in this area, and how are they trying to publicize some of this to get to the average uh, average American? What's happening now is that there is a movement that's starting, but it's 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 new. Uh, if you look at some of the statements, for example, from organizations like um, the United States Institute for Peace (USIP). Um, you now hear their president talking about these types of issues of, of needing to have priority, needing to get to the point where we are spending as much, if not more, on preventing uh, uh, violence and on addressing things like the economic conditions for youth more so than than uh, we are, or as at least as much as we are in waging uh, war in order to stop conflict. Um, the whole goal here is to get ahead of this. The whole goal here is uh, is prevention, and you're now starting just now to see uh, the initial uh, coming together of many organizations. I would point out uh, it was a couple years ago, probably one of the first steps um, was the current administration when, when President Obama uh, brought together uh, many people who had, had uh, both some activity and also some interest in Africa to talk about some of these situations. But here again, what we found is, and, and this is difficult because at the end of the day, peace isn't sexy. And, uh, and, and when the media looks at it, you know, they go, wow, what makes this great story, right? Uh, what, what's the old – there was an old saying about, um, uh, you know, you'll get a better story that, that says uh, dog bites man than, than man bites dog. Man <laughs> dog not. But um, so, so what happens now is that you, you don't get the input and the activity from the grassroots folks. Um, uh, two quick examples. Kofi Annan, recent, and I, and I admire Kofi Annan tremendously, and we have worked with his organization in Ghana. Um, they just had a um, meeting that the, they publicized on their website about the coming together of, of uh, uh, several key high-ranking diplomats, uh, both current and, and previously held positions. Uh, to talk about everything from maintaining uh, the integrity of democratic elections to some of these other big issues. But the thing is, while all those things are good, they don't get the input from the people who are actually at risk. You know, we see this. I have a, a friend who is a university pers- uh, professor in, Sa- in Sudan, and she talks about a program they've done between Sudan and South Sudan where professors got together. And one of the things they realized right away and one of the things they publicize now is that with all the peace efforts between Sudan and South Sudan that were happening in other capitals, none of it included the people that were actually involved in the fighting. Right, so so it's this this odd thing that we're trying to get to and open up. Yeah, and let me ask you, what is the you know beyond the NGOs? What are the roles you're seeing of uh, of various religious organizations, churches in these areas? Because they they have, they have the people, right? They they have got some population of it. Is is it very compartmentalized? You know, here in this country, we have you know so many different uh, churches. I think one of the neat things this weekend 
was the Together uh, 2016 event where people just said, look, we, we don't care whether you're this, that, or the other. Let's all come together uh, for some fellowship. I mean, are, 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 is that too compartmentalized in, in Africa, or, or are the, is there a role for some of these churches to play in some of this in terms of bringing the people out? I, there is a key and critical role in religious organizations uh, taking part in these solutions, and and in fact, um, right before this uh, right before this show, I was on a uh, uh, call uh, with uh, our president, uh, Father Clement, uh, in Ghana, and we are getting ready to have an interfaith peace conference. Uh, in northern Ghana next month, and I will be over there for that. And the key there is that we're not just bringing the government leaders, the youth leaders, the women's group leaders, and all that together. We're now bringing the religious leaders together to talk about how you address some of these areas of conflict. And the reason we're doing that is because throughout Africa, whether it's Muslim, Christian, it doesn't matter. But the organizational structure is already there through the religious organizations, right. and it allow, it's, it presents a level of trust to the people. And we work with all religions very closely uh, because they have that, that level of organization. Now, that's the good news. Um, where we're still trying to get ahead of the curve here is that when you engage uh, funding organizations, um, uh, and there are many that are religiously based, they still tend to use Western metrics, and they still tend to need to have something to show for what they've done. Right. And, it's, and it's hard to show, well, hey, guess what? No war broke out, so we're at peace. Yep. That's a hard metric to defend in, in many cases for, for uh, whether they're shareholders or donors. And so a, a lot of the message and a lot of the conversation that we now need to turn to is that, that we need to use different metrics. We need to use metrics that are meaningful on the ground in Africa. They may not as be meaningful here, but you need to be able to get ahead of um, violence, and and to do that, you have to have a lot of engagement. Uh, one of the thing, one of the metrics you mentioned at the beginning of the show that we look at is local economic development, and I think that there is a a key and critical uh, component that says that if you have uh, a local economic development happening, and you see entrepreneurs coming out and and taking their money and working with others and hiring locals. Um, that that by and large gets you down a road uh, where you create uh, an environment for sustainable peace. Yeah, and, you know, you, your three uh, focus areas, again, engagement, education, and local economic development, you could take that and plop that down in, in the center of any major U.S. city and find these same problems. Like you could take that problem and plop that down in, in maybe some of the, the Rust Belt states or areas that are depressed in this country outside of cities, and you would find these same things fueling tensions and, and concerns among people. Absolutely. In, in fact, uh, the last time I was here, we talked about uh, Ernesto Ciroli, um, and he has a, a, uh, a process that I love and have used uh, and, and always champion uh, called Enterprise Facilitation. And in fact, he started his first experiment with that was in Australia, in the outback. Uh, then he has taken that to parts of Africa, and he's done it within the United States, just as you point out. So it is a universal uh, issue. It's also there are also some universal solutions. 
So what are the threats you raise as having these youth recruited by violent extremist groups like ISIS? And John Kerry, Secretary of State, recently noted that ISIS is on the run and losing territory in Iraq and Syria. Should we be encouraged by these words, or is there more to the story? Well, Ed, it's a great question. We should be encouraged by these words, but we have to put it in perspective. Um, When Secretary Kerry says this, uh, he's looking at this in two ways. First, in a very traditional fashion that countries look at conflict, and that is what territory do you hold? Right, so territory becomes a real key, and and the fact that ISIS is losing territory becomes important. And the second is, both he and the president have to play to a political base. I mean, if you remember, President Obama, one of the things he wanted to do was end conflict, get our troops out of harm's way. And I'm not saying that as a negative. I'm saying it's a reality. And so when they say things like this, it does tend to play to those who say, why are we involved in these things? I think what's more important, though, is that when uh, a few weeks before uh, Secretary Kerry's comments, President Obama came on and said much the same thing. But within hours of him saying this, uh, the director of the CIA, John Brennan, testified before the Senate. And his points were, I think, even more important and, and, and more upfront because he didn't he wasn't playing to to a different audience and that is um, he pointed out that although ISIS territory is being reduced their finances are being squeezed the replenishment fighters are having a harder time because of border controls of physically getting there and um, that there is some disillusion uh, causing some defectors he pointed out some key points first that they remain resilient cohesive and, and formidable that they are adjusting their tactics and probing the front lines to discover weaknesses and can penetrate deep inside the coalition, Uh, that they are relying more on terrorist tactics, that they are receiving still $10 million a month in black market oil sales, Um, that, that really they're not reducing or we haven't reduced their terrorism capability or their global reach. They still use social media effectively and they still have a large cadre of Western fighters that uh, are cultivating branches globally, especially, and this is why I watch this closely, in Africa. And we see now uh, ISIS recruiters and other, other individuals of that ilk going throughout Western and Eastern Africa to gain footholds, to disrupt things, and so it's not the ISIS we've been focusing on is the ISIS that, that gained territory and surprised everybody in a, and everything like that. The base ISIS ideological, ideological tenets and, and what's happening there are still showing up now in Africa. Yeah, it's. I heard a few uh, speakers this past week, and, and they really said that they're very adaptable and that they're, they're responding to this reduction in territory in Syria and in Iraq by spreading their influence globally. Some of the stats they quoted, the UN estimates that ISIS is in 43 countries. And of course, we all heard on the news in the last couple of days that the FBI has current investigations of people suspected with ISIS links in every single state in the U.S. And another estimate was that there have been 1,268 terrorist attacks across the globe in 2016. So this is not, you know, the victory may be in terms of territory in one region of the world, but these are big issues. And, and this threat of violent extremism to the African youth and then in turn to the world is an issue. And, it, and it's not always, uh, I mean, we kind of tend, tend to have a mental picture 
based on what we see on television of what an ISIS fighter looks like, right? Um, there is a, a local uh, priest who is uh, uh, Sal and I know who who is from the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo (DRC), and he was talking to a group. I happened to be there, and one of the things he pointed out was that that in in his hometown. Uh, what he noticed when he went back was that there were a lot more Muslims than than there used to be, not a problem. But what he noticed was most of them were not from the DRC, number one. And number two, many of them came back and and played the role of very, very successful businessmen, which immediately caught the youth's attention to go, oh, well, you know. And that, in essence, in part, became a recruiting tool. You know, you uh, you folks have a, a peace initiative coming up here. You mentioned um, uh, in the next few months. Tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, wh- how you're sort of staging that. What your goals are for that event. Uh, you know, take a few minutes and uh, and promote it. Sure. Thank you, Sal. Um, in September, we are going to be doing a um, uh, conference here locally at George Mason University, uh, the Arlington campus. That's called Building Sustainable Peace 2016. And what we will be doing with that is bringing together a variety of uh, practitioners, uh, uh, speakers from a variety of areas that will look at the issue of how, what does it take to build sustainable peace and what does it take to advocate for, for changing the dynamics, for changing the priorities, to really focus on prevention as much as we focus on, on reaction. Um, and so it's going to be uh, – uh, we're looking at an interesting format. Uh, if you can picture kind of a, uh, a TED Talks meets World Economic Forum – uh, um, then that's you know what what we're aiming for, and we're uh, going to be getting a lot more out on this very soon. Um, but we we think that this will be a a fantastic opportunity uh, to encourage individuals, but also uh, uh, folks from government and and elsewhere to come in and to uh, engage in this discussion. And how can folks get involved? I mean, obviously, you have a speakers list now, but uh is this going to be open to general attendance? Is there how do, how do people get in touch with you and get involved in this event? Anybody can register. You can go to our website at www.72africa.org. You will see a banner right there on the home page that talks about the conference. You can click, and it will take you to a registration page. And what are your, some of your, I guess, short, uh, short and long-term goals for, for coming out of the conference? You've got some heavy hitters. You've got a great uh, series of people coming in to talk about some of these challenges. But what are some of your goals coming out of the the conference, and and particularly what you're doing with the satellite peace initiatives in Ghana? How does that? How? What are you hoping for coming out of that? For short term goals, um, we're really looking at getting co- uh, organizations and individuals together who who don't normally work together. Uh, they have complementary activities, but they haven't really pulled together. And to get them to start talking and, and acting, not just talking, but, but acting in unison, in uh, advocating for the, the types of goals we want to have, and also for understanding um, that we need to break down some of the barriers that we have in government. So, for example, if I go to a government uh, person in the State Department and say, hey, you know, Local economic development. You know, if we do this, a peace initiative. If we do this, we will we'll get these benefits. 
the minute I say development, it goes into a whole nother category and a whole nother office because things are so defined now that, well, oh, development funds. Well, that's for certain things. And so a lot of this is is cutting through a lot of the red tape, a lot of the rhetoric, and, and getting to a point where we can be agile and reactive enough to jump on these opportunities and, and go forward. And, and that affects the longer-term goal, which is uh, ultimately to to find areas both through government and through private organizations of truly sustainable funding for these types of initiatives. So it's so it's you don't wait until something's about to happen. Right now, I, I mentioned that we're going to be doing a uh, an effort next month. One of the reasons we're now funded to do this effort is because Western governments finally woke up to the fact that Ghana was having their national elections in November, just like we are, and they want to make sure they go through and that they're peaceful. So suddenly within the last three months, millions of dollars have flooded in to, to look at making sure that, that uh, the uh, uh, democratic processes in Ghana go off without violence. And you have a lot of the Ghanaians that we run into now going, well, where were they a year ago, right? And where and why all of a sudden this attention? And oh, by the way, does that mean everybody's leaving? You know, in December. Um, and so, what we offer right away through Seventy Two Africa is sustainability. We're going to be there. These are long-term issues and long-term efforts, and that's really the key. Yeah, it's huge because you, you think about these government budget cycles and even program cycles, which are set five years in terms of strategic initiatives. And, you know, is what you're talking about is sort of this reactive mode where some funding is freed up and some very executive decisions are made. But, you know, can we get a funding line for sustainable peace? Can we start building that into one of the pillars as governments, as, as organizations uh, to really have something that's rich? And, and you touched on a number of things there, the sustainability aspect of that. The budget challenges of that, the reactiveness that we've seen too many times. So that the great comments there. So Tim, we have probably three more minutes, a little under, and I wanted to make sure that we got to your call calls to action. I know you've got a few things you wanted to share with the audience. So could you maybe dive into those? Absolutely. Um, I, I actually I actually have a couple. Let let me uh, talk about this in, uh, to set it up quickly in terms of what, what I call waging peace. Waging peace, you know, we talk, we, everybody knows about waging war. Waging peace is just as important, and it is, takes just as much effort to do that. And there's a variety of things that people can do, but the bottom line is we look at things today, and we even Iraq and Syria, can we win the war? That's, that's the dialogue, right? My question is, can we win the peace? You know, because even if everybody goes, you know, tomorrow, the, the peace is not assured. You have to work at it. And and if you look at it, this has been recognized over the years by some some amazing people. Um, if you go into the Holocaust Museum, uh, there's a there's a, a comment there uh, by by Pastor Martin Neumiller that says, in Germany, the Nazis came for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me, and by that time, there was no one left to speak. 
And so it's really important for all of us, everybody, to get engaged in this. Uh, Nelson Mandela uh, mentioned that, that my heroes are those men and women who fight for the gross violations of human rights. Uh, Martin Luther King, one of my favorite comments, those who love peace must learn to organize as effectively as those who love war. Um, the Apostle Peter recognized peace as something to be worked for uh, in 1 Peter 4.11 when he says, they must seek peace and pursue it. That's an active thing that you must do. And of course, it almost goes without saying, Jesus pointed it out in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, he didn't say blessed are those who seek peace. He said blessed are the peacemakers. And it just goes to point that we have to do some things actively. So, so here are my calls to action. Um, first, find an organization. Find an organization, whether it's 72 Africa, whether it's some other organization, that looks at the root causes of, of issues that cause hardship and loss of hope. Uh, don't just write a check because you see you know something happen. Find out whether that's find find out whether you're able to prevent that. And and the second part of that is don't just write a check. But obviously, you know all the organizations would love donations, but actively engage, actively engage, and don't be silent. Become vocal with your message. Whether it you know what I like to say is. What I would love to see is people at the end of each week to sit back and go, how did I wage peace this week? How did I wage peace? And finally, if you go onto our website, you're going to see a new box on there that says Waging Peace. And if you click on that, you're going to be able to download a sign that says Wage Peace. And I have, oh, I one, I have one right here that I'm going to give to you guys because I have a challenge, and you'll see it on our website, and that is – Use that sign. Take pictures of that sign with you. I'm going to take one at the end of this program and post it of you guys. And put it on Facebook. Put it on your web. Do this between now and September 21st, which is the International Day of Peace. Great idea. Listen, we're going to really have to cut short. We're running over. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this is Ed and Sal signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night, and be sure to tune into Grace.